You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 4th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Welcome to 2012. Welcome you mean 2012. 2012, everybody. 2012, Evan. <laughs> you guys have to make the switch. No, two ot one two. <laughs> <laughs> the last year of existence. That's it. The yeah. world ends this yeah, year. It's going to be a short one. Yeah. Make it a good one. Well, not, yep. I mean, Rebecca, it's supposed to happen in December. It's not going to be that short. It's going to be uh, nine days short. Ten days short. 12, 12, right? 12. 20, is it the 21st, I think? Well, some people yeah, do 12, 12, 12. Some do 12, 12, 21. You know, whatever. So we've, this is the, a new year, and we do like to you know, tweak the format of the show a little bit with each new year, experiment with a few new segments. I want a quickie with Bob. Yeah, so that's, that's <laughs> yeah. one of the segments. I, you can have mine, too. Is, uh, calm, calm yourself, Jay. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm so excited. It's called <laughs> A Quickie with Bob, where at any point during the show, anyone can shout out that they want a quickie with Bob, and Bob will give us... A, a very, very brief, and not a brief for Bob, but a really brief description <laughs> of a news item, a science news item with a provocative headline. What's the cap? It's going to be like 30 seconds, right? Or a minute. I was thinking of one minute. A minute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll, yeah, that's fine. I'll we can call it. it out any time during the course of the show? Or it happens only once. But only once. once. Right. Yeah. So, so don't abuse the privilege. Jay was just demonstrating for us. That one won't count. Steve, can people do this at live... SGU shows. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll talk about it. We'll have to see how it goes. We're, we're giving it a try. Uh, and another change is that, Rebecca, you are taking over the This Day in Skepticism segment. So I, I am. start I'm us honored. off. Um, I am honored that Evan has given me this great responsibility. He did a fantastic job over the last year uh, with This Day in Thanks, Skeptic Rebecca. History. So Which Evan you, made up Evan. this segment by himself, too. I mean, he... Just he sort did. of did it, and it sort of evolved yeah. into a full-blown segment. It's a lot of, and it's a lot of pressure, you know, for me to carry on that torch. So take a, hopefully, take care of my baby, Rebecca. I'll, I'll do my best, Evan. <laughs> I know you best. will. So, uh, for I want to quit you, Jay. Jay, calm yourself. You can't help. You see, this is going to happen every week. Oh, this the is a terrible this. mistake. <laughs> you know what? Like three <laughs> weeks, we're totally going to forget to do right. it. Bob will be like, can nobody we... wants a quickie with me? <laughs> <laughs> okay, can we say if one person does it, they can't do it the next week? Can we have that as sort of as a I like that You can't rule. do it two weeks That's in a row? That's probably a good rule. Can't, you yeah. can't call it two weeks in a okay. row. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this day in history. Yep. This is a very interesting day. It was a very interesting day for one Galileo. Maybe you've heard of him. Through much of December of 1609, Galileo observed the moon through the telescope that he had created and perfected that year. On January 7th of 1610, he wrote a letter describing what he had seen, which is that the moon, and I quote, is most evidently not at all of an even smooth and regular surface as a great many people believe of it and of the other heavenly bodies, but on the contrary, it is rough and unequal. In short, it is shown to be such that sane reasoning cannot conclude otherwise than that it is full of prominences and cavities similar, but much larger to the mountains and valleys spread over Earth's surface. However, that was not the only moon news that Galileo broke on January 7th of 1610. That same day, he used his telescope to observe Jupiter, and he found what he called 
and I quote, three fixed stars totally invisible by their smallness. He observed those stars for several nights, eventually realizing that there were actually four of them, and he watched them move and disappear behind Jupiter. This led him to believe that they were actually not stars, but moons orbiting Jupiter, which we now call the Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Now, this was huge news because these were the first moons discovered after our own moon. And obviously that caused a huge uproar because everybody was like, well, if those are moons, then what are we supposed to call our moon? And Galileo was like, I don't care. Look, the point is that these are celestial bodies orbiting another celestial body, which is pretty definitive evidence that everything doesn't orbit Earth. And everyone was like, but what are we supposed to call our moon? So Galileo was like, I don't know, the moon. But nobody was happy with that <laughs> because it's frankly confusing to use a definite article to distinguish a moon from the moon. So the Inquisition had, had him placed under house arrest. Yes. That's his day in history. So th there were... Those were two very heretical observations that Galileo made. As you said, that it was the, the belief at the time of the earth, the very laws of nature set into motion by God. Everything had to revolve about the earth. So the notion that something revolved about something other than the earth was heresy. Second, there was supposed to be a very clear difference between the corrupt physical things on the earth and the perfect heavenly things in the sky. The fact that there were blemishes, mountains, and, and you know, imperfections on the surface of the moon was also equally heretical. Uh, so the, those are the two things that got him in hot water with the church. Also, when he metaphorically referred to the Pope as a simpleton in his book. But, yeah. You know. Simplicio. Yes. Simplicio. Did you ever read that? The, the, yeah, that was a, it was, a, it was a, he had a, he had a fake conversation one representing the scientific point of view, one representing sort of the superstitious, primitive point of view named Simplicio. And somebody, I can't remember the, the name of the other characters, but it was, I actually read the book like uh, 20 years ago. It was very interesting. Um, and so there was an interesting way for him to explain the science as a conversation between essentially a scientist and an average person and a, a Pseudoscientist, you know, a superstitious person. Yeah. Sounds like sort of a Greek classic way of yeah, like, yeah. It's almost like a Socratic argument. dialogue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Very nice. Very cool. All right, thanks, Rebecca. Um, Great job, Rebecca. Thanks, Evan. So this is our first episode of 2012, and as is tradition on the SGU, we review the predictions, psychic predictions specifically, that were made for 2011 to see how. The psychics did. This is from Psychic Nikki. Um, the Playboy Mansion will burn down. Yeah, <laughs> that did not happen. She meant she meant figuratively, with gonorrhea. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is absolutely the most ridiculous prediction. A gold rush will occur in Hawaii. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> um, is it 1890? But if you think about it, a gold rush will occur in Hawaii. A gold rush. Now, aren't those islands made from volcanoes? Yes, they sure they are. are. So yeah. there isn't there isn't a lot of old old enough material there where gold would be infused in it. Am I correct in thinking this? All right. So volcanoes can actually spew forth gold and and other valuable minerals. Although I don't think that Hawaii is is a volcanic system that's spewing forth any valuable minerals, and also. Gold mines can result from old volcanoes 
where the gold has had time to concentrate into a load through various processes such as erosion. In a new volcanic system like the Hawaiian Islands, the gold would, if it were spewing gold, which I don't think it is, it would be diffuse in, in the volcanic ash or the soil. So not really a good location for a gold rush. She meant it figuratively. <laughs> right. It's a metaphor for... For uh, pawn shops uh, <laughs> getting a lot of gold. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Psychic Nikki actually came up with another one that's even dumber than the gold rush in Hawaii. It's the first brain transplant will take place. <laughs> first brain transplant. <laughs> oh, my God. Brain and brain. What awesome. is brain? Come on, Spock won't be born for centuries. Spock's brain. Uh, I mean, really? And anyway, it shouldn't well, be called a brain transplant. It should be called a body transplant. A body transplant, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe some scientist took some gang- ganglia out of a worm or something, put in another worm. So maybe maybe it there did you happen in some level. No. You know, Evan, I actually yeah, didn't think of that angle. Meant. Sure, like maybe some super basic, yeah, but like, of course, she's talking about humans, right? I mean, come on. She's not well, talking about yeah. a tapeworm here. But <laughs> let's just give psychic Nikki the benefit of the doubt. That's what Evan's saying. <laughs> okay, Monty the psychic. Monty. Uh, th- I think Monty uh Monty probably is a guy. Monty said a device to allow people to levitate will be built where you can walk on a platform and levitate. That's kind of close. There was that crazy levitation thing that was made uh a few months ago. It wasn't I don't think they got around to levitating a person on it, but they could levitate objects in an impressive manner. Yeah, but this is not a platform, like you know. No, side- but I'm going to give him a half a point. I don't give him shit. Okay, <laughs> I'm the- just playing psychic's advocate here. <laughs> the uh, the U.S. military will sabotage President Obama's administration by leaking damaging information on him to the public. That's that happened well, when we discovered that Barack Obama was teleported to Mars. Yep, mm-hmm. part of a CIA pro- secret project. Yeah. There you go. Secret and they were using a, a levitation platform when they did it. Yeah, maybe that that happened. A, you can Google that. All right. Audience. So then, then I I remember Steve mentioning the psychic twins. So I looked them up, and. I don't know. I, I had like – it was almost like I had an accident on my computer over here. It was so insane what I found. So check this out. All right. So the psychic twins, Terry and Linda Jameson. And I watched an interview with them on The View that was recorded July eighth, two 2011 to huck their, their new psychic intelligence book, okay? Did you know that they claim they connect uh, telepathically and they share a soul mm-hmm. and that they were psychic in the womb? Yeah. There you go. They call that twin tuition. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And they, they say that they have a bifurcated soul. That makes sense. Yep. Just works. And um, they say that they have clairvoyance, claircognizance, clairsentience, and clairaudience. Claire Danes. Claire Danes. <laughs> 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 wow. That was good. Um, so from their book, they claim that you may think that because we are identical twins and share the same DNA, we're naturally more telepathic than most. Okay. And in fact, we do have twin telepathic experiences on a daily basis. We don't need Blackberries or iPhones to communicate with each other. We use Twinberry mental telepathy. Yeah, I mean, surely if they can communicate every day in the same manner that one would use a phone for, that's something yeah. that is quite easily testable. Mm-hmm. 
So a few more interesting facts about the twins is the, they claim that they worked for the Pentagon for Project Foresight. They claim to have predicted all of the attacks since their supposed initial predictions of 9-11 back in early 1999 uh, while they were on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM premiere radio. They said that they never used their powers for personal gain because why? Any guesses? Oh, because uh, that would bad, corrupt it. Bad karma. Right. Bad karma. They'll lose their yeah, gift. Yeah, so that's yeah. their that's their excuse. And actually, that's the best excuse I've ever heard is, oh, well, we can't do it because the way that it works, we'll lose our gift. But that's I, – I think the JF has heard that a lot and that's why they offer to donate the money to charity. Yes. Your hands will never be sullied by the filthy skeptical money. <laughs> so um, <laughs> while watching the segment of The View, Whoopi totally buys their, their BS and was oh, making yeah. ridiculous statements like, uh, like twins can sense each other and know things like when one breaks a limb. Thank you, Whoopi Goldberg. You're awesome. Uh, they go on to give the show a prediction for the fall of 2011 because keep in mind this was a recording that was earlier in the summer. Uh, a hurricane hits the East Coast. Kind of happened. It turned into a, turned into a tropical storm Whoa. before it hit us. Wow. Yeah, but Steve, what a stretch. A hurricane hits the East Coast. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to read Whoopi's past lives and they told her that she was a nun. No, that was a movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was the movie. <laughs> Duh. She she was also a cop fighting crime with a dinosaur oh, and a bartender on a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and um, I, then I I, I um, collected a list of of things that were not predicted yes, at all. Yes, it's always fun to the flip side. And, and okay, so let's see: uh, Japan earthquake and tsunami and the associated nuclear crisis. Bin Laden's death. Tucson, Arizona shooting rampage, uh, the death of Amy Winehouse, Occupy Wall Street, Kim Jong-il's death. He was very ill. Uh, Penn State abuse scandal. That was, that was a good one. Steve Jobs' death. That's another huge one. None of these were mm-hmm. predicted. That about covers it. Do you, do you guys remember your own predictions that you made at the beginning of 2011? One prediction only, which I, was very plausible. I thought, at least at the time, in that the United States government, the Obama administration, would have a change of heart and decide to continue the space shuttle program through the end of the year. Ouch. Wah, wah, wah. And uh, all, well, <laughs> you know, there was a little glimmer of hope, which though, happened? in which, you know, there were, <laughs> well, it did. But it, one of the, when the shuttle, uh, when one of the last shuttle launches got delayed, I'm like, all right, well, that kind of helps push my prediction along a little bit. Maybe that's the nudge it needs, you know, the little, the, the, uh, the, the stone that, you know, at the top of the hill and rolls and yeah, but snow no. on the way down and becomes this big snowball effect. But so uh, I made no, three predictions. Uh, one prediction was an exoplanet roughly the size of Earth with the possibility of liquid water on the surface will be discovered. That one was, Ding. that's not true, but. Rough uh, exoplanets no. roughly the size of Earth have been discovered, and an exoplanet with the possibility of liquid water on the surface have been discovered, but they're not the same planet. But we haven't found one planet with right. both of those things at the same time. Um, so we got close. I was sort of all, really all around it, but I'm going to repeat that prediction for next year. You're already one up on Psychic uh, yes, Nikki. Uh, I have four new predictions. I also predicted that the SETI Institute will announce that it has received the best candidate ET signal to date, one that will remain viable and will need to be examined with more sensitive equipment. That did not happen. And my celebrity death prediction was Luke Montagnier, and he's still kicking. 
So I was... As far as we know. Well, one half for three, if you give me half a credit for the exoplanet one. It's not bad. It's better, better than Nikki. Than Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, predicted, I predicted that the Earth, the world as we know it, will end. <laughs> and I have here Earth simulation. So uh, I think I got that right. I think it did end, but we are in a simulation. It's indistinguishable from know the reality. It, so like, real that's, yeah. 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 Um, I also have again. <laughs> close call with an asteroid that would have killed thousands if it hit Earth. I don't know. That's... Well, we did pretty... have a close call, although they happened <laughs> fairly frequently. Oh, vague. Um, I, cl- I classify that yeah. with hurricane Earthquake. and coast. So I'm going to take that, that as that a kind of – regardless, I'll still take that as a hit. Oh, great. Yeah. And I've got here uh, also um, about 2011 being the year that astronomers announce uh, the discovery of like, a whole bunch of Earth-sized exoplanets. And yeah. And that kind of happened too. So, damn, I'm three for three. Wow. Good job. Well done, Bob. Well done. Okay. Uh, first up, celebrity death, which, as you guys know, is my specialty after I totally nailed it on Michael Jackson. Uh, I'm going to go with Michael Douglas is here. Uh, I don't know why. Just came to me in a dream. He survived bout, big bout with cancer last year. Uh, yeah. He was, he was very sick. And, and I think we should mention that you know we do the celebrity death thing and all of these psychic predictions to show how easy it can be to make predictions, to make a bunch of predictions and have one or two come true right. that you can then trump up. So, um, so yeah, that's one. Number two of three. Number two is that there will be an Arrested Development movie. Arrested Development movie. Very exciting. I, I saw it in my head. I saw it happening. It's going to happen. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and number three is that scientists will discover that chimpanzees do something that everyone thought only <laughs> humans do. <laughs> Those are my predictions. I have uh, my predictions from last year. I said that I, I predicted Nelson Mandela was going to die, and he did not. And I also predicted that there was going to be a amazingly vague cancer cure, which that mm. apparently did not take place either. Oh. But I do predict that both of those things will happen someday. Someday. Oh, someday. Okay, here are my predictions for 2012. I predict that none of our predictions that we say on this show this year will come true. <laughs> I like that, Jay. Oh, That's a good one. Ouch. Very, ouch. Very Bet, cool. Playing against the house. Betting against. Yeah. That's not cool. One prediction that I made that I'm going to make for 2012 and that was that uh Bigfoot will sweep into the White House. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot. <laughs> and his, his running mate will be a gray alien. Ooh. So Nessie gets left out in the cold. Yeah, huh? Nessie's doesn't make it past the primaries. David Ike <laughs> believe is right with you on that, Steve. I mean he thinks Heck, a lizard every- is already in the White House. <laughs> right. That's the difference. Yeah, awesome. an alien lizard. So Obama's <laughs> a black lizard in the White House? A blizzard. Yeah. He's a blizzard. I want a quickie with Bob. Oh all right, all right. Let's give Jay his quickie. Bob, Wait, can it. I just say, you wouldn't say a white lizard. Lizards aren't black or white. They're green, It's called Jay. a wizard. A wizard. <laughs> <laughs> A wizard or a blizzard? Okay. A wizard or a blizzard. You want a blizzard or a wizard? What is a wizard would make it also like a like a racist white blizzard? Bob, oh. the quickie has been called for. Thank you, Jay. I'll be gentle and quick. Wait, that didn't come out <laughs> That's right. That's what you said. Yeah. 
Uh, ScienceDaily.com today uh, had an article. The title was Lost World Discovered Around Antarctic Vents. Uh, this was really cool. The seafloor near Antarctica was recently found to be teeming with whole communities of new species. They found things like sea stars, barnacles, sea anemones, and yeti crab, also known as the Bigfoot crab. I jest. My favorite find, though, was an octopus, but unfortunately, the best that they can say about it is that it's probably new to science, so they're not quite sure yet, so I, I hope it is brand new. Now, now, these creatures live deep in the ocean near hydrothermal vents and black smokers, which spew out essentially hot water and, uh, and chemicals into the water, which can be near 382 degrees Celsius at times. Wow, that is incredibly hot. hot. So, as you might expect, they do not rely on photosynthesis in any way, since light doesn't reach them at all. Uh, I also suppose that the corpses of dead fish and small organisms don't rain down on them in any significant numbers, because um, if they did eat them, then they would indirectly be photosynthetic-based creatures. So the, they're therefore chemosynthetic creatures relying on the chemicals around them, probably mostly produced by the vents uh, to nourish themselves. And I just thought that was a really cool article that uh, people would be interested in. Go to ScienceDaily.com and I'm sure many other uh, science news outlets if you want more details. Thanks, Bob. Good job, Bob. Wow. Thank you. That was good. But we need to have a buzzer to cut Bob off in a minute. <laughs> old like the one in my bedroom. Or, uh... All right. Well, let's wrap up the... Uh... The predictions segment as well. We will post the rest of our predictions for 2012 on the Rogues Gallery blog. Uh, so take a look for them there. That will also serve to document the predictions so that we can check how we did at the end of the year. Jay, um, you are going to talk about a satellite system that hackers are planning to put into orbit. Imagine if hackers were resourceful enough to put their own communication satellite into space as part as part of a ground stations and low orbit satellite network. That's what is, uh, that's like the plan that's being discussed and was recently talked about at the Chaos Communication Congress in Berlin, uh, on 1227 of 2011. So, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, at this conference, they were talking about this interesting idea. The idea here is to create a network where people can communicate unregulated and unrestricted by the government. Which, of course, if you're paying attention, you'd know that the increasing threat of Internet censorship, efforts like SOPA, Stop Online Piracy Act, which was introduced in October 2011, and, and things like that have inspired and motivated the people behind the project. Uh, real quick, SOPA is basically a, a pending bill that's going to be passed that proposes that sites who infringe on copyrights can be taken offline. You know, which would give the government an amazing amount of power to just knock websites off the internet, which I personally amazingly uh, disagree with. I think that's a, it would be a horrible mistake and, and could have massively negative consequences online. Apparently, I'm not the only one that thinks this way because a lot of hackers are actually getting together and starting to talk about the idea of creating their own network, their own communication network that falls out of bounds of government. So. The idea and the project that they came up with is called Hackerspace Global Grid. And because it would require a grid of ground stations to track and communicate with the satellites. The project is being described as like a global grassroots space program. Partly because they, they want to create a new, uh, a new network to, for people to communicate with, which like I said would require satellites. It would require a lot of ground based stations and everything and it, 
obviously the technology, it wouldn't be as robust as things that we have today, but it would be a way to communicate unrestricted by the government. They also have plans that are lofty, which some of the ideas I heard that they came up with wanting to put a man on the moon and, and you know, send people into outer space and things like that. But I think the initial idea here is just to create this network that can be uncensored. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting idea. I would love to see them get some traction just at the very least at the very least, to see what the government would do about it, see if there was any like big, big negative reaction, and would people take it as a threat? Like, what would be what would be the uh, the the government or the global government's reaction to such a thing? But I, I'm not too sure that this thing is that possible from a financial standpoint. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, I mean that's that's my knee jerk reaction is that it's just so prohibitively expensive to actually get anything into space. One way they've actually uh, been able to do that, though, is to actually piggyback these uh, these small devices onto uh, onto other rockets that were going up and launching conventional satellites. And I think uh, some uh, some uh, astronauts in the um, in the space station, I think they were uh, uh, Russian astronauts, who actually were able to. Uh, I think they were actually went out and. Uh, and launched a couple things from the space station. Um, so if they have, I mean, if you could do that, then that that's great. But of course, that's extremely limiting as well because you're not low Earth orbit. Uh, by definition, it's not geosynchronous. You're not going to have a satellite that appears to be overhead twenty four seven. It's going to it's going to be orbiting every ninety minutes. So sure, you could have some satellites doing that, but you're not going to have created. Uh, you're not going to create a uh, a network, an internet that. Uh, that you can use like the conventional internet. I mean, you'll be able to send data in bursts because that satellite's going to be out of view uh, very quickly. So from that point of view, it would be very difficult to actually replace um, replace the internet. Now, I, I found a really interesting quote from Professor Alan Woodward from the computing department of the University of Surrey. He said that uh, that's not to say they can't be used for communications, but obviously only for relatively brief periods. It's difficult to see how such satellites could be used as a viable communications grid other than in bursts, even if there were a significant number in your constellation. So it would be difficult. Now, of course, this technology is in, is changing very quickly and improving very fast. I, I think eventually we'll reach a time where where uh, people that are, you know, relatively unsophisticated and not with a lot of money will be able to uh, to launch satellites like that. Although the regulations, I think, would be would be pretty incredible. Yeah, I, mean, I like this idea. You know, of and again, we use the term hackers, uh, but it kind of can have a negative connotation if you're not familiar with it. But it really is just people who are interested in uh, free communication and open sourcing computer software and also. Um, in, in security, and they're, they're often so-called like white hackers that are actually involved in helping companies protect their computers and their infrastructure. And the, you know these hackers are mainly interested in not allowing the government to censor or restrict or limit internet communication, and that is definitely a goal that I completely agree with. I think it would, you know, the, the internet has been such a boon to human communication and to the flow of data. It would be a shame if you know any governments decided to interfere with that. In my opinion, another interesting news item this past week: a study was published looking at expert violinists. These like you know violin players who who are professionals and and very good at their craft, who in fact own uh, many of them of extremely expensive uh, violins. Some of them Stradivarius, uh, you know, obviously like the most famous maker of, uh, of violins, and also Guarneri, which is the, 
perhaps the second most prestigious or famous historical Italian violin, and uh, uh, also some modern violins, although like high-end $30,000 violins. And they did an interesting study. They had uh, these violinists play uh, these violins blindfolded and then decide, try to decide, you know, which one did they like the best and which violin did they think was the Stradivarius? And how do you think they did? I think they failed, just like in every other, (laughs) yeah, every other study that, that attempts to deduce quality from, you know, from a blinded group of people. I'm going to say that I think that they were fairly accurate. Uh, good thing this isn't the science or fiction because, Bob, because they, they failed. Uh, so these were 17 professional violinists. I knew they, it. They, they <laughs> played right. blindfolded two Stradivarius, one Guarneri, and three modern violins. Uh, they were literally blinded, meaning they were blindfolded. And they could not tell the difference. Three were able to correctly state the, which one was the Stradivarius. Seven guessed incorrectly, and seven said they couldn't tell. Had they ever held these violins before? I was, I'm, I was, I was curious about this. You know, maybe a, a professional player could feel a difference between the violins and therefore help their guess, as opposed to just. Well, each of them. I, I, the way I read the article is that they were their violins. You know, at least some of them. They, you know, because there's not that many Stradivarius violins around. So Can we borrow your violin for a study? And then they also became one of the violinists in, in, in the study. The deeper question here is: people believe they can tell the difference between different violins. Now, of course, these were all very high-quality violins. The modern violins were still $30,000 violins. They weren't cheapo violins. I don't think anybody would say you can't tell the difference or a professional violinist couldn't tell the difference between you know, a $300 violin and a $30,000 violin. There is definite real differences in material and quality of construction, etc., that would make a huge difference. But the question is, is there a difference between a $30,000 modern violin and a million-dollar Stradivarius? Is there, was there some secret um, that to the construction of violins, uh, the materials used or whatever that Stradivarius had? Or was it just, was, is there something t- to the fact that the violins have aged for so long? Is the, does the wood become richer or something when it ages? Uh, but in fact, you know, there there may not be a difference. A, a well-constructed modern violin may be just as good as a Stradivarius. So, you you know, it makes you wonder about, as Rebecca said, you know, whenever these kinds of studies are done, it always seems that blinded perception really is very, very poor and that a lot of things that people believe to be true, like telling very expensive wine from from cheap wine or bottled water from tap water, you know, or in this case, famous, you know, Stradivarius violins from uh, modern equivalents. Uh, It turns out that you can't tell the difference when blinded, that the perceived difference is is therefore, I mean, you know, when not blinded, you say, yes, I hear a difference or I taste a difference or whatever. And then when blinded, you can't tell the difference. Then it was simply expectation and bias that was creating the perception in the first place. There was also a really interesting study um, that goes along the same theme that came out of Princeton um, a couple of years ago, wherein um, musicians auditioned for spots in orchestras, and the people doing the auditions, the people judging them, were actually 
blinded. Um, the musicians played behind a screen and then they were played in front of the, the judges and they found that, um, women tended to get hired at a much higher rate when the judges were blinded. Um, the judges were just expecting the women to do worse. And, uh, according to the researchers that sort of led them to actually hear them doing worse. So yeah, expectations can definitely influence the way that our senses, the way we, we think our, our senses are reacting. The example I had thought about was the monster audio cables tests. And for for those who've been following forums at the JREF for many years and so forth, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth about these cables, these $5,000 audio cables, right. Versus $30 really, you know, just average cables. And you cannot, can't tell the difference when, when, when properly blinded, you cannot tell the difference between the two. I think it's, it's a little surprising though, that, you know, we're, we're basically saying that the human ear can't, you know, hear subtleties and things like that in, in this regard. And I, I'm a little surprised to hear that. I mean, I, I can understand if like you, you have a room, uh, filled with $100,000 incredibly awesome violins. That there's probably the reason why they're thought to be so good is that they share a lot of qualities and, you know, there's, there are, there are details involved with that that probably make those instruments sound really good and there's maybe a lot of similarities and all that stuff. I bet that they could tell the difference between a mediocre violin and a high end violin. Well, again, remember, yeah, the, here we're talking about, you know, com- we're comparing high end violins to other high end violins. It's not as if they couldn't hear the difference between, you know, we got a, a cheapo violin and and a thirty thousand dollar violin. Uh, that that is not what this is showing. It, it, I did find another study that showed uh, this one was looking at wine tasting, and they did a very interesting thing. They, uh, exp- you know, they gave people wine to taste, you know, blinded to what the wine actually was, and then in one group they. Made some negative comments about the quality of the wine prior to them tasting it. In the second group, they made the same comments after they tasted it. So the question was is the negative commentary biasing the reporting of what the wine taster tasted, or was it biasing their experience of what they tasted? That's what they were trying to control for there. And it found that for those tasters who were exposed to the negative information prior to tasting, that they reported. A, a much you know a lower poorer quality taste to the wine, and that those who were exposed after they tasted it didn't that there was the, they couldn't there was no effect from the negative commentary, so that suggests again it's one study et cetera but it, it if it's true, it suggests that the negative commentary was not just biasing their reporting about what they experienced, it was actually biasing their experience itself, it altered their experience. And this relates to a comment that you made on a previous episode, Rebecca, when this came up, that, well, you can actually justify the price of more expensive wine because it makes people enjoy it more, even though it's purely psychological. And that study actually supported that interpretation, that it affects the experience. Yeah, and I think that study was the same one. I might be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure it's the same one where they found that taking white wine and coloring it red uh, made the people drinking it describe the wine using typically red, uh, 
terms. No, that was a different like study, but berry flavored. Was it a different? Yeah, one? Yeah, okay. that that study actually was was looking at something specific, and that was the association of what we see with the words that we use. That's really what they were studying mm. there. So they were trying to control for the wine by using white wine. So they said, okay, well, the, they, the, the tasters will not be describing what they're actually tasting because we're, we're giving them white wine. But they will, use, they will use red words to describe the red wine even though it's just been dyed red. That, that's what they were demonstrating. Um, so it's like, you know, it still had the effect of showing how easily we are we can be fooled. Our perceptions can be fooled by what we think we're we're experiencing. And also it showed how we alter what we experience with one sense based upon what our other senses are experiencing. That our brain actually compares that. Our, our brains will actually take into consideration what our other senses are experiencing and then adjust what what one sense is experiencing to make it all make sense and fit together. I'm drinking red wine, therefore I'm going to experience the flavor of red wine. And it actually alters what you taste, not just by singular reporting. Particularly with our language choices, I think a lot of people don't realize how much our, whatever language you speak, um, that can seriously affect the way you experience the world. Um, if you... I mean, the, the old incorrect standbys that, uh, the Inuit have, you know, a million words for snow. Um, but it, it is true that, you know, there are different cultures, yeah. different languages use different words and the, and that can seriously impact the way you experience things. Absolutely. Interesting study. It actually, it's scary to think about how much our perception is untrustworthy. Mm hmm. But it is, and, you know, and then, and just like with, you know, you pay more for wine, you have a better experience. Some people argue that holding a Stradivarius has an effect on a, on a violinist and they may actually play better when when they're playing a Stradivarius because of like the... Like a placebo effect? Yeah, there's like a placebo effect to it. So, so, And maybe there's something to be said for that, you know, in terms of you're squeezing a better performance out of a certain performer. I don't know if that's true. Hmm. That That's sort of a hand-waving explanation. Uh, but some, there are those who claim that. All right, Evan, we're, we have to. Uh, yeah. We need to do a who's that noisy? We're going back, but going back two weeks because we skipped the holiday week. Yeah, a couple weeks. We got to go back, 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 back to episode. What was it? Three thirty-six, I believe it was. So many episodes, so much time has passed. But let me cue it up here and play. Who's that noisy? The sky is uh, a deep black. Uh, when viewed from the moon as it is when viewed from uh, cislunar space, the space between the Earth and the moon. So who was that, Noisy? Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. Cool. Man on the moon, numero uno himself. Who, whom did not give many interviews, I mean, in proportion to his you know, fame and accomplishment. He was kind of a reserved person especially after he was done with his time uh with the uh with the space program he went into uh teaching actually amongst other amongst other activities uh he served on uh the panels that investigated uh, uh other uh space disasters the Apollo 13 and the Challenger shuttle in 86 um but he basically retreated into a life of uh teaching and uh you know they asked you know he was pursued relentlessly by political parties right everybody wanted him on basically on their political team and he 
refused and refused and refused some more and refused some more. So um, since 1994, Armstrong has refused all requests for autographs. He's uh, found that his signed items are selling for large amounts of money, and he's like, oh, I'm done with that. It's, no one's, no one else is going to get rich off of, uh, off of him that way. So he's uh, a little reclusive in that sense, but still just such a tremendous, important person in, in world history. And who won? Who got that first? Well, uh, Trinock was the first to no. uh, to uh, write in and guess. Yeah, yeah, he was, and he gave people about an hour or so before. He's actually, he, uh, t- t- yeah, tying one hand behind his back and still getting it correct. He is. He's given people a chance. So, we have a new twist for 2012. And what's that, that, noisy folks? What we have here is I'm going to play for you a couple of blips of noise, just little tiny really quick audio clips. The idea here is to guess the theme of exactly what these blips of noise have in common. Okay. All right. So you're not necessarily, it's fine if you want to guess exactly what you're hearing and uh, on top of it. But the idea here is to come up with the theme I'm going for with the who's that noisy. I think this is going to be a fun and different twist on who's that noisy for at least, uh, well, going forward in, in 2012. Yeah. I'm going to try to mix things up a bit in this regard. And this is one way I'm going to be doing this. So let me go ahead, cue that up, and play for you the first who's that noisy of 2012. The mother was talking about. We want to empower parents. Mental regression into diseases. All right, you got that? That was quick. You got to be quick. Okay. They were all distinct, but there is a theme. So, give it your best guess. Sign on to our forums at uh, sguforums.com. Or if you'd want, instead, info at theskepticsguide.org. Give us your answer there. And as always, good luck. Okay, thanks, Evan. Well, let's go on with our interview. We are joined now by Martin Runqvist. Martin, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you, Steve. And Martin is the chairman of the Swedish Skeptic Society and also the author of the popular Aardvarkiology science blog. He was on our show once before, uh, and you are back on as the first interview of 2012 to tell us about a specific issue that's been happening in Sweden. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is about electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Um, we just um, announced our annual re- reward and anti-reward. Uh, the, the reward went to, to the best uh, science show for kids on Swedish TV. It's been going on for 16 years. But uh, that's not what we're talking about today. It's the, the uh, EHS, the hypersensitivity thing. Um, we've got people in Sweden, and I know there are people in other countries, who believe that uh, their symptoms, uh, which can be pretty... Um, pretty debilitating, are due to electromagnetic uh, fields, specifically cell phone radiation and uh, radio emissions. Yeah, so they think that they can sense electromagnetic fields and that it causes them uh, biological symptoms, you know, that, that headaches, nausea, dizziness, fatigue. Yeah, even tinnitus. Tinnitus ringing in the ears, yeah. Although those symptoms are all what we call non-specific symptoms. They could be symptoms of of anything, really, of many different things. It's not a specific syndrome, or just not point in the direction of a specific 
process or disease. So they're, mm-hmm. they're commonly related to either you know just dubious syndromes or syndromes that are really more psychological or it may be due to some chronic illness, just not what people think it is. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> the thing to remember about this is that these people are, really are suffering, and uh, you, you can't sort of make fun of them. They're, they're not making this up just to, to uh, hassle society. But their idea about uh, the, the cause of it is, is uh, unsubstantiated. When you do provocation tests, uh, giving them uh, <laughs> a wire and telling them it's live or it's, it's not live, then they, they can't really tell. Uh, their symptoms will sort of vary with what they believe about the wire, but not with what the wire's uh, physical characteristics are. Yeah, so on, on, in a blinded condition, you know, there's no, they, they can't uh, demonstrate that it's a real phenomenon, essentially. Exactly. So what happened in Sweden was that in the municipalities of Mora and uh, Orsa in central Sweden, which is a sort of a scenic and famous part of the country in Dale Carlia, there was this guy who, uh, he bought a property out in the woods because he thought that he needed to get away from electromagnetic uh, mm-hmm. fields uh, because he had these pretty severe symptoms of, of EHS. He believed he was uh, hypersensitive to this stuff. So in uh, 2006, he, he wrote a letter to the Board for the Environment in, in the municipality, and he told them that, I've got these problems, I need you to, to help me establish a low-radiation zone around my house. And the Board for the Environment never stopped to, to check whether his assessment of the reason for, for his symptoms was sort of medically accepted or uh, plausible. They just uh, sort of chalked it down. Oh, oh right, this guy has this, this trouble with, uh, with electromagnetic fields. We need to do something about this. So the Board for the Environment has been spending the past five years uh, writing to cell phone operators, uh, trying to, to get some sort of case going in the EU court, mm-hmm. the, the European Union's uh, uh, court. And um, this, this thing culminated this past autumn when they actually uh, uh, tried to uh, pretty much uh, turn off cell phones, radio and TV in half of this uh, county uh, for the benefit of, of, of the guy with the, the, mm-hmm. the medical problem. All the while, they, they haven't even checked the Wikipedia entry yeah. for uh, EHS, which states uh, plainly in the first couple of sentences that these people have a problem. It's not due to electromagnetic uh, right. right. um, So, field. yeah, there's multiple layers to this issue. The, the, as you say, the, the first one is, is this guy's medical claims correct? Are they plausible? Does this, does this, uh, this syndrome even exist? And there, I mean, the World Health Organization and other sci- scientists have reviewed the literature. There was actually published 25,000 relevant articles that was reviewed by the World Health Organization. So this is, you can't say that this hasn't been studied. And they concluded that there's no evidence of any biological effect here. They obviously utterly failed at that level. But even, let's say this guy did have some sensitivity. I still find it amazing that they would justify shutting down cell phone, op, you know, operations in a in a broad area. I mean, how many people live in this area? What are we talking about? Hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people would be affected. Oh yeah, for um, one guy. It's also an area where people uh, do a lot of um, traveling in winter time. And imagine the number of people who would just freeze to death, death if they couldn't uh, call somebody when, they're, when they run into a, a exactly. snow drift with their car. 
would, this would actually kill people, this, this law, if they got their way. Oh, certainly. Uh, but, but looking at it from a, a slightly longer t- time perspective, this is sort of nothing new. Um, uh, researchers in the field, they, they talk about techno-stress, that uh, over the decades, uh, the same symptoms are ascribed to different uh, new technologies. So yeah. when I was a kid, we used to have something called oral galvanism in Sweden. Do you know what that is? Um, oral galvanism sounds like some metal. Yeah, it was sort of um, the the precursor to the mercury scare. People uh, with yeah. um, uh, tooth uh, dental amalgams, yeah. they believe that they had some sort of weird um, uh, galvanic uh, element thing going on in their mouths, which also gave all these weird diffuse symptoms. And uh, about the same time, people had something called... Um, uh, the computer screen uh, illness, yeah. which likewise no longer exists because uh, these people or uh, today's sufferers have moved on to a new uh, new technology that wasn't around at the time. And uh, this goes goes uh, all the way back to the 1830s when the, the goose quill was replaced by the steel nib pen, which caused techno-stress and people with diffuse symptoms yeah. when they had to switch to, to the new weird pen, which made them ill. So the actual um, the idea of the pen made them ill. No, I don't think I don't think so, Jay. I think what happens is there's always this background of people who have these symptoms. They're that, that because they're non-specific symptoms that could be due to many chronic conditions: poor sleep, depression, some you know maybe even chronic low-level infection, uh, or whatever. Just you know being under a lot of stress and they seek for various a diagnosis to explain their symptoms and over the years over the centuries there's been this you know shifting a number of diagnoses the techno stress is one category but that's not even the whole picture there's also uh you know over the years people ascribed it to something called neurasthenia which doesn't really mean anything um, to uh, syphilis, now to chronic Lyme disease, multiple chemical sensitivity, sick building syndrome, candida hypersensitivity, there's, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, some of these may, like chronic fatigue syndrome may actually exist, uh, but I think the vast majority of people who sort of cling to that diagnosis don't have anything definable as chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and this is, this is, it's the same list of symptoms over and over again just with a shifting mm-hmm. diagnosis. Well, it is important to remember that we're not giving our anti-award to, to the sufferers, but we're giving it to the Award for the Environment yeah. in Moore and Orso. And when, when this case uh, got, got into the news uh, this past autumn, uh, another really sad case came online. Uh, journalists uh, found them. Uh, another family that had moved into the woods to, to get away from, from radiation and... Uh, they still had these symptoms, despite the fact that they were living out in the sticks and they were insulating their house with tin foil and wearing tin foil yeah. hats and suits and you know. They still had these symptoms and they they after a while they realized what the problem was. It turned out that there were wolves in the woods and they were wearing radio tracking devices. Yes. <laughs> so they were. They believed that uh, radioactive wolves were sort of uh, walking up their house during the night and uh, uh, emitting radio waves and then walking off again. Yeah, but that kind of throws so, the whole dose-response notion out the window. If 
the slightest dose, like a, a transient oh, yeah, yeah. encounter and, with and, you wolves know, with, radi- with tracking devices, is enough to produce the full syndrome. And Sweden only has like 100 wolves or something. <laughs> and uh, none of them were in the area at the time. Right. So it was just sort of uh, a, a way to, to keep your idea uh, despite having done something about it already. Right, right. So, yeah, the, the, it's hard to, to help these people, uh, but the Board for the Environment shouldn't have let this poor guy uh, believe for five years that they were sort of on his case for him and, and uh, do, doing what he needed. He could have been in therapy five years ago. Mm. Exactly. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing you have to remember here, because the, the, the people who claim or believe that they have a syndrome, they're the victims in all of this. They They have symptoms for some reason, and... Uh, they are not being well served by these pseudo experts or crank experts who are promoting these notions, you know, promoting the notion of uh, things like electromagnetic sensitivity. And it gives them something to latch on to. Uh, and, and then they become invested in that idea. That it's, their beliefs then get reinforced by, you know, the, the people with letters after their name saying that this is all true. And, of course, if they get taken seriously by, mm-hmm. um, by government agencies or government organizations, that, that again lends more credibility. And it just becomes more harder and harder and harder to convince them that they're barking up the wrong tree. And it's all a huge, massive distraction from whatever is really going on. So that's what we're doing in uh, in Sweden at the moment, uh, talking to the media about uh, electromagnetic hypersensitivity and, and getting uh, getting hate from from people who think that we we have no compassion. Well, yeah. So I, th- I that's where I was going earlier with the notion that the, so the they try to take the compassionate high ground to, to the people who are either claiming to have the syndrome or. Are, promoting the notion of a specific syndrome like electrom- electromagnetic sensitivity. But really, it, it's, they don't have the compassionate high ground because you know, it's not like we're saying this isn't, you, this isn't real, you're not, not really having symptoms, and we don't care about your quality of life. We're saying we don't want you to be distracted by something that's not true. The truth is what you need. You need to know what's really going on, whatever that is, and not be distracted by this false diagnosis. That's where the compassion is. But I think that's the case you really got to make to the media. Otherwise, I think the default position is to to for the media to portray the the people who are defending these dubious syndromes as the compassionate healers and the skeptics as the villain. That's the default story. Have you been running run into that at all? Yeah, to some extent. And also, I think it's a question of people um, having pretty low opinion of uh, of a mental illness. That, that they'll be perfectly happy to have something physical. But if if somebody suggests that maybe yeah. there's something you, you you need to do, uh, which is between your ears, then they will be offended. Um, because nobody wants to, to be seen as nuts. Yeah, there's a stigma attached to saying that these are symptoms of, for example, depression. And uh, so sometimes people are just trying, looking for something else because they want to avoid that stigma. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I, I heard, because I blogged about this, and some, you know, one of the commenters said that, um, that politicians who are higher up the pecking order essentially flat out said there's not going to be any radiation-free zone. So they shot down that idea. Is that true? Can yeah. You confirm yeah the, that? Uh, <clears throat> the, the, the county administration uh, realized that their board for the environment has sort of, sort of gone, uh, uh, gone, gone, gone rogue. rogue. That's the word. <laughs> They'll be on your show in no time. Um, but uh, no, I don't think there will be, be any uh, curtailment of the, of the infrastructure up there. 
but still, the, there's been a lot of publicity around this thing, and uh, just the way they, they've handled this without... Uh, <laughs> they've been saying things in the media like, well, you know, we, we Googled this thing, and we, we read some forum posts... <laughs> that's where they, they got oh boy, their, four posts. That's where they got their their uh, info on, on the issue, but of course, uh, yeah. a board for the environment needs to 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 handle a lot of pretty intricate um, things. I mean, it's everything from uh, industrial pollution to to the noise level around motorways. So, uh, yeah, sure, they can slip up every now and then, but doing it uh, so uh, bullheadedly for five years is is pretty unique, I think. Well, Martin, have you had any direct dealings with the politicians at all and spoken to them directly and kind of helped steer them on the correct course over this? Uh, no, not, not until this uh, th- thing sort of bro- was broken by the media uh, two months ago. So uh, I, I was on, on the radio the other day along with the, the, the chairman of the board, uh, the, the board for the environment. But apart from that, no, I haven't. Uh, this, is a, this is not a, a very populous part of the country, so we don't usually know much about what they're doing up there. Certainly not what their board for the environment is doing. It was the chairman of that board still defending their position? Well, yeah, he was sort of slightly backing off, but he he, um, he was saying basically that, uh, yeah, we're, we're getting a lot of support from people who are writing in to tell us that we're on the right track here. And, and uh, uh, we're pretty proud of, of sort of sticking our, our chin out and, and uh, taking this on. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe still you should should have uh, uh, talked to somebody who was into the real science, the real me- medical research on the issue. So uh, I'm pretty sure they're they're going to uh, backtrack uh, as, as fast as they can. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. But um, meanwhile, we've got a lot of uh, pretty good uh, skeptical conferences uh, coming on in, in Europe, which uh, m- might be interesting to you and your listeners. Can I uh, give you a, sh- a short run through? Yeah, yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah, so the, the first yeah, one is, is, is in neighboring Norway in February, uh, from the 17th of February to the 19th. It's the critical, no, the, uh, yeah, the critical mass conference, uh, which is, is really good. I've been, been there once. That's February. And then in May, it's Berlin. It's the World Skeptics Conference, a really big one, 18th to 20th that. of May. Yeah, you should definitely come because uh, that, that's, uh, that even uh, goes to the colonies, doesn't it, when it's global? It's the World yeah. Skeptics Conference. Well, I'm going to be speaking at it, so I kind of have to be Oh, there. excellent. I'll buy you dinner. <laughs> All right. Very Deal. good. Cool. Blood sausage. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, no. In Germany, it's the curry sausage, the, the it's, vegetarian it's curry sausage, even. Oh, and then next year in in 2013, uh, the Swedish skeptics are hosting the the European Skeptics Convention. So uh, we we'll hope you we'll see you there then. Great. Well, Martin, thank you so much for joining us and updating us on this issue. We appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. All right, Martin. Take care. Bye, guys. Thanks again. Thank Thanks you. for signing up, Martin. Yep. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for the first science or fiction of 2012? I'm very excited about this one. I have a perfect record. It's a, yeah, we have a yeah, that's why, Evan. Clean slate. Oh. <laughs> I needed I need 2011 to die oh just my to God. rot away. Well, come on, I finished just below you. So what do you, how do you think I feel?
All right, Evan, this is it. This is our year to shine. You and me. We are unseating them. All right, let's hold hands. Okay, here we go. Item number one, study of butterfly mimics finds that heliconius species are often tricked into mating with mimic species. Item number two, a new thorough examination of poisonous frogs finds that their color accurately signals their poisonousness to birds. And item number three, a scientist has described a case of a fish mimicking an octopus that in turn was mimicking another fish. Rebecca, as the reigning champion of 2011, if you don't count me, that is, you get to go first. Okay, a fish mimicking an octopus mimicking another fish. So the fish wasn't just mimicking an, another fish, but for some reason it decided to mimic an octopus masquerading as the fish. That's beautiful. I love nature. I, I'm going to go ahead and say that one's true. Um, butterfly mimics. The heliconius species are often tricked into mating with mimic species. Yeah, I can see that. I've seen all kinds of animals mating with other animals that they think are the correct things to mate with. I've seen ducks, uh, mating with dead ducks. <laughs> animals are not intelligent. Um, mm. so. <laughs> In fact, I, I'm going to go so far as to say that a lot of animals are stupid. So <laughs> that one seems perfectly true, which leaves us with the idea that poisonous frogs accurately convey their poisonousness to birds through color. That's weird. I know that, you know, poison dart frogs are the really brightly colored, cool looking frogs. But why... Why just to birds? Why not to anybody? That one seems like it should be true. It seems like an obvious thing. Uh, that color is often used in nature to mean danger, stay away. But maybe in this thorough examination, they found something different. Maybe they found that non-poisonous frogs use color to trick birds. Maybe they found that poisonous frogs, some poisonous frog species had doll colors. So I, I'm going to go in and say that one's the fiction. Okay. By the way, there was a theme, if you hadn't noticed it. The theme, of course, is animal coloration and mimicry. Thanks for spelling that one Thank out. Thank you. <clears throat> Just point that out in case it wasn't obvious. Bob, uh, you're next. I've seen the, the octopus that uh, can mimic other fish, and it is truly amazing. Google that. I forget what kind of octopus it is, but it's... Uh, Bob, you can't say that. I already did. Um, but yeah, but Jay, this is fish mimicking an octopus that's mimicking other fish. So that's, that's the twist here. Yeah. I mean, I could, I wouldn't put that past fish to be able to do that. I mean, it's not like the fish is like chuckling thinking, huh, how ironic is this? It's just mimicking an octopus and that octopus just happens to in turn be mimicking other fish. So yeah, I don't have much of a problem with that. The poisonous frog one though. Yeah. That's, that does seem clear, um, that the reason why these, these animals are brightly colored is that the other so the other animals know so yeah maybe it's too obvious but um uh, i think i'm going to go with that one and say that that one that one is is science the first one though the butterfly mimic i wasn't aware that other animals had sex with other mimics and maybe because of that if that's true maybe i shouldn't even be picking this one i just don't see the utility of a mimic tricking another species into mating with it just for maybe except maybe for the sheer pleasure of it 
I mean, what, what's the real advantage there? What's the, what's the goal? Uh, why would that be selected for? Uh, so because of that, I'm going to say that that one's fiction. Okay, Jay. All right, Steve. I'm trying to really turn over a new leaf here. Okay. But I'm not quite clear on what the one about the butterflies means. So you're aware that there are butterfly mimics? Yes, there are insects that pretend to be butterflies. No, there are butterflies that pretend to be other butterflies. There are, I'm, I'm not aware there of are, that. There no. are non-poisonous butterflies that pretend to be poisonous butterflies so that, okay, so that, that they won't sense. get eaten. And they do such a good job of mimicking the poisonous butter, butterflies, according to this item, that sometimes they trick those poisonous butterflies into mating with them. Wow. Today I learned there are poisonous butterflies. Terrifying. So at some point, a non-poisonous butterfly faked it so well that they get sexed up by a poisonous butterfly. That's what they're saying. And, of course, their reaction is like, ah, you're poisonous, no, they're, right? They're poisonous to, no? to prey. You know, if you eat them, like if you're a bird and you eat okay. the butterfly, it's poisonous. So you. Oh, okay, so that's a double win for the fakers <laughs> because they're like, sure, I could see that. That makes sense. I could see how that goes. And then we got the one here about the poisonous frogs that are communicating uh, to birds, telling them, I am poisonous, do not eat me. I don't know how that, that's, that one seems strange to me. I don't know how that communication, like, of course I had to evolve where they, they know somehow. Yeah, but why would you say it's, they're communicating to the birds? Isn't it like the birds figured it out to stay away from them? I'll let you, I'll let you work out the evolutionary aspect of it for yourself. Uh, and then, and the third one, see, I'm already, Evan, I'm already screwing this up. Uh-oh. Here, I'm already off track here. we here. go. All right, so finally, in the, the third one there, the one about the fish mimicking the octopus, mimicking the fish. See, I actually think it's a fish mimicking an octopus, mimicking a fish that was mimicking a shark. I think that's the actual news item. Probably, um, yeah. Crickets. Thank you. Crickets. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to – I wouldn't put it past an octopus to get mixed up with a couple of crazy fish, <laughs> so that one I'll just take. Okay, that one's science, say. Okay, we're just saying that that one is science. Second one here, though, about the poisonous frogs and the birds. I don't know. Um, okay, yes. I've made my decision, Steve. <laughs> um, I like the idea of the butterflies that are so good at faking it out that they actually get to have sex with the butterflies are trying to be. My only question left is do they fake <laughs> orgasms with those other butterflies? How would that be evolutionarily so- advantageous to them? <laughs> It only means more terrible sex in the future. Never fake an orgasm. Butterflies, no. That's true, Rebecca. If you fake an orgasm, you're giving the inappropriate feedback <laughs> for bad performance. Exactly. I never, I never understood why anyone would do that. You, so like, what do you do? Do you like give a raspberry or do you boo? <laughs> yeah, I have a big buzzer over the bed. Or thumbs up, <laughs> you check, thumbs you down. check your watch. Oh my check God. your watch, is, right? Is Adam's like buzzer room. system he made for your game? Like, is that by the bed? <laughs> and you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it helps. You're done you know, yet? Whatever. All right, I'm going to say that the poisonous frogs are not communicating to the birds. Okay, Evan? Yeah, uh, I'm going to agree with uh, Jay and Rebecca on this one. My thought being that birds, we know that birds have extra cones and rods in their eyes. So they see things very differently than we do. So we perceive these frogs as, you know, certain colors to us. But to the birds, it's probably an entirely different set of colors. And that, therefore, does not accurately signal 
their poisonousness to the birds. So that's my thoughts behind that, and that's why I'm choosing that. So you all agree that a scientist had described a case of a fish mimicking an octopus that in turn was mimicking an, mimicking another fish because it's just too cool not to be true. It's a fish topus. It's a fish topus, and that one is science. That's cool. That one cool. is science. Yep. Turducken, yeah. The octopus, Thaumoctopus mimicus. Thaumoctopus. That sounds like a That's Marvel a superhero. Yeah, I know. I'm yeah. Thaumoctopus. <laughs> the Thaumoctopus often mimics flatfish because they are poisonous. They like they contort their tentacles in a way in just this, the right way to mimic the shape of the fish, and then they undulate along the bottom of the ocean in the same way that the flatfish does. So it's a very convincing mimic, and you should you should see pictures of it. It's very cool. Well, uh, a diver has observed, well, it's a scientist who was diving, I should say, a jawfish who was swimming along with the octopus and was mimicking the coloration and the movement of the flatfish through the octopus. So he was sort of hiding cool. in the, with the octopus. I said, I'm just another flatfish along here with this octopus. So two mimics, neither of which were actually the flatfish. Uh, Steve, um these octopuses or octopi, they can octopi. I mean they actually that you didn't really stress that they actually not only can mimic body shapes but but coloration as well. I mean, oh yeah, they, yeah, they change the coloration, yeah. Yeah, the cool thing about that is that it's I mean it's it's not really like chameleons because chameleons the, the skin changes but it's a chemical reaction, so it takes time. It's not gonna be an instant or very quick change. Whereas because these this octopus can can change its coloration, it's, I think that's it, the skin uh, color is like linked to the neurons of the brain, so it's actually controlled by the brain like like directly. Yeah, and it's it, very it, rapid, it's really yeah. fast. And one cool thing I, I saw them doing once was actually it could like undulate the colors of its skin back and forth, back and forth, so that if yes. you're chasing this octopus, it's like it's like an illusion where you're like, wait, where you know, you, it's very hard to gauge distance when the colors are going back and forth and back and forth. It was so cool. Yeah, it's distorting. Yeah, disorienting. <laughs> this is a case of opportunistic mimicry, and it's the, believed to be the first observed such case. Very cool. cool. Now, in items one and two, I will, I will first tell you that one of you is right for the wrong reason, and another one of you is wrong for the right reason. Ooh. Wow. Awesome. Uh, but I let's, love when that happens. <laughs> let's I'm go to number one. Confused. A study of okay. butterfly mimics finds that heliconia species are often tricked into mating with mimic species. Bob, you're alone in thinking that this one is fiction. The rest of you think that this one is science. And this one is the fiction. Yay. Ah, Congratulations, crap. Bob. 100%. I'm not doing Bob. any more science fiction for the rest of the year. <laughs> it was for the wrong reasons, though. So yes, you were right. So your your reasoning was off. You said that what would be the advantage to the species, but it w- that you're being hyper-adaptationalist in that reasoning. It would, it, the, the, I the like idea, being hyper-adaptationalist. The idea was that the mimic species is mimicking the heliconius just so that it won't get eaten. And that as a side effect to that, it does the mimicry so well that it tricks the, the, the heliconia species into mating with it. But not that there would have to be or that there was any selective pressure or to, to that trickery. But in fact, what the study showed was the exact opposite, that despite the fact that there are certain species which do an excellent job of mimicking the heliconius, they never seem to trick the heliconius into mating with it. So what scientists discovered is that the heliconia species 
actually evolved a combination of a coloring in the uh, the ultraviolet um, spectrum and the ability to see in that spectrum. So they broadened the spectrum in which they can see visible light, uh, and they wow they they have coloration in that spectrum. So it's a secret visual signal that they could send each other that the other species don't have and don't see. So they have no problem telling themselves apart from mimic species because they have these bright markings that are invisible to the mimic species. Isn't that cool? Wow, that's really interesting. Woo. That is really cool. So let's go on to number two. A new thorough examination of poisonous frogs finds that their color accurately signals their poisonousness to birds, and that one is science. So this is, you can kind of go both ways on this and think, yeah, that there is a, a tight relationship between the coloration of frogs and how poisonous they are, or maybe there isn't such a tight relationship. Maybe there are lots of mimics in there that are, that are taking advantage of you know, the, the poisonousness of other brightly colored frogs, and they're diluting out the sample. But it, the examination found that, that when you – the interesting thing here is that the scientists were able to examine the coloration of the frogs using the visual systems of different types of animals. So in other words, what do the frogs look like to birds versus two snakes versus two some other kind of animal? Snakes cannot detect the poisonousness of frogs at all, of these types of frogs. That, in fact, there's no correlation or very you know, little to no correlation when, you, when, when the frogs were analyzed from the visual system of uh, snakes. But when they looked at it using the visual system of birds, they found that there was a very tight, consistent correlation between how poisonous a frog was and how brightly vividly colored it was. So it wasn't just black or white either. It's like the more vividly colored they were, the more poisonous they were. They were. Um, and so the, the thinking is that the bird predators are just presenting a dominant evolutionary pressure to these po- poisonous frog species, but so much more than, say, snakes, that the frogs, you know, their, their, their pressures, their selective pressures were, are dominated by their bird predation and not, uh, not affected by the snake predation. That evolution is so blazingly cool. It just—it always yeah. blows my mind yeah, how, yeah. how quirky and weird, and and then it makes sense though. You yeah, know? yeah, it does. So, Steve, you should not lick That's colorful right. frogs. That's right. right. You ever hear that? Yes. Now, so, Evan. So, Evan, you were wrong for the right reason. In that, you you hit upon the notion that birds do have a different visual system, and that that is playing a role. But it was just in the opposite direction from what you were assuming. It's nah, enabling no. them to see. It yeah, went the other way with the yeah. I say we give him nah. the point. <laughs> we take away from Bob. Ooh. Yeah. I'm not going to uh, do yeah. it's, it's the show your work rule. <laughs> show your work. Of 2012. That is true. In geometry, we had to always, you know, write out our proofs, yeah. right? Yeah. Negative marks if nice you just try. write down the answer. And Steve, don't ever call me hyper adaptation. <laughs> well, don't be one. Okay. Um, all right. Thanks for, thanks for playing this week, guys. Off to a good start, Bob. Yeah. Off to a good start. <laughs> yeah. Jay, do you have a quote for us? Bob. All right, Steve, I'm starting out with a very skeptical quote for 2012. Do you know who David Suzuki is? Yeah, he's that Japanese-Canadian environmentalist. Exactly. Wow. wow. Good job, Steve. Steve. Didn't, he, didn't he do a science show? Didn't uh, he make motorcycles? Or that was his brother. 
Johnny Suzuki. <laughs> Education has failed in a very serious way to convey the most important lesson science can teach. Skepticism. David Suzuki! <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What a great quote. Good job finding that quote, Trey. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining me for the first SGU episode of 2012. Here we go. Thank you, Steve. This is great. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.